0: And welcome to episode 102 of the Creative Writer's Toolbelt. This is a guest episode and I'm joined today by the independent author and blogger, Monica Lionel. Monica has written across several genres and series, most notably her young adult urban fantasy and paranormal romance series, Waters Dark and Deep. Monica also writes about indie publishing at proseonfire.com and her most recent non-fiction series, Growth Hacking for Storytellers, has helped thousands of writers write faster, become better tellers and find their way to success. She's also the creator of the Breakout Author Masterclass and she's just published Get Your Book Selling, which tells you how to jumpstart your sales with a simple plan that just works. Before becoming an independent author, Monica led digital efforts at companies like Hanson's Natural and Braintree. She's been an avid blogger of marketing and business trends since 2007, and her ideas have featured in Ad Age, The Huffington Post, The Amex Open Forum, GigaOM, Mashable, Social Media Today, and The Christian Science Monitor. Monica lives in a very, very old, three-story home in St. Louis, Missouri, with her husband and adorable Westie Mia. To find out what she's up to, just sign up at MonicaLeonel.com. And so, Monica, it's great to have you with us today. Welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, it's great to have you with us. And I want to start with a question about your background. Could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and particularly what were the cultural influences in terms of books and films and TV and stuff like that on you when you were a child?
1: Well, I actually grew up sort of everywhere and nowhere. My parents were both in the military uh, so they were Air Force, and we traveled all over the world. We lived in lots of different areas overseas. And I would say that during that time, I spent a lot of time reading. So I read a lot of Nancy Drew, Babysitter's Club, Sweet Valley High, Boxcar Children, Chronicles of Narnia, like all the basics that are common for children. You know, sometimes I would even read two books a day. Now, granted, they're smaller, you know, probably thirty or forty thousand words. but still i I could read up to two books a day. I had a stack of books by my bedside at all times, and I just like read through them very quickly. And then as I got older, I think because of living overseas, I just still continued to find comfort in those books that were aimed at children and teenagers. So books like uh, the Harry Potter series, I love those even though I was an adult by the time I started reading them. So I continued with that. And now as a writer, I write young adult fiction. Um, I, I do also write adult fiction, but I think my passion is still... Uh, the young adult genre.
0: Okay I just want to pick up on something particularly that you said there I wondered if you think that books can be a particularly important source of comfort and support especially for younger readers and if that is the case how does that inform our work if we're writing perhaps for children or for a YA audience?
1: Yeah absolutely it was definitely an escape for me and I think I tended to struggle with moving regularly as a child just because I think I Prefer routines <laughs> as many children do. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, you know, I definitely, it was easier to kind of escape my reality in some senses. I'm not sure how we as writers can put that into our books aside from just representing a diverse group of children the same way you would do in any other yes. genre. You want to you know, you want to create characters that people see themselves in. And so I know, as a child, I never had a book about, you know, an Air Force kid, and like all the all the things that I had to go through, but other people, they did. They, they were able to kind of see themselves in different characters. And I know for me, one of the things that I loved about the books I read when I was a kid was that all of the characters, they, you know, they had lived in the same place for most of their lives. They had grown up with the same kids and had the same neighbors and they had this real sense of community a lot of the time, So those were the books that I tended to read. And, you know, it was kind of a contrast to my situation.
0: Okay, I want to move on now from you as a reader to you as a writer. So what motivated you to start writing? And what were the sort of things that you wrote when you did get started with that?
1: Well, so when I was young, I did not particularly care for English or literature or any of the those subjects. I actually loved math. Okay. And so then as I grew up, I I still loved to read, but I pursued the sciences. So I got a degree in computer science and I was doing software engineering and I studied physics. And so I was really more on the science side. Then when I got into work and when I started um, in the software field, I just, I felt like I was kind of in the wrong spot. And so I started a blog. I was about 22, I guess, and it was 2007. So this was when blogging was kind of all coming online <laughs> um, and kind of, it was, you know, it was just starting up. So I I wrote in my blog probably three or four days a week and I started to really enjoy writing and I started to get a lot better at it and then at the same time I was reading all of these books um, like Harry Potter and Twilight and The Hunger Games and The Mortal Instruments so a lot of like really popular young adult series and um just between those two. So sometime in 2009, I published, I self-published my first nonfiction book. Um, And once I had done that, then I thought maybe I can write a fiction book too. Like maybe I can write something like, you know, all these amazing books I read. And so in 2011, that's when I published my first fiction and it was a young adult book um, that's not on the market anymore, but I've basically taken it and rewritten parts of it and repackaged it. So now it's a series that I have out now called Water Dark and Deep. And that was kind of how I got
0: into it. Okay, so now you've got a whole range of nonfiction and fiction material out there. So it sounds as if you started with the blogging and then it's just grown and matured, the range of work that you do from there.
1: Yeah, that's true. So with blogging, I I was right re- I was doing blogging regularly and then in t- in 2011 I really stepped back from it and a lot of it was because I had been sharing just like things that were going on in my life on my blog as most people do you know they add that personal Those personal stories to what they're talking about. And for me in 2011, I just had a lot of personal stuff happening. Like I was going through a divorce. I was leaving a, um, I was leaving a job and it was just, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to blog anymore. So I had kind of turned to fiction to escape a lot of that. It ended up being really healing for me to switch gears. Um, so then just over the years. So up until about 2014, I hadn't, I had pu- been publishing maybe like a book a year, which is great. But if you're independently publishing, a lot of times, you know, that's not really enough, um, to start earning money from it. So then, um, in 2014, I published eight books and a short story that year. And I kind of continued to do that going on. So these, these books were shorter books cause it was a serial. Um, so they were like 25,000 words each 25 to 30,000. Um, but it was still, you know, it was still really big production for me compared to what I had been doing before. And so then just every year since then I've been publishing just a lot more books like this, this year I'll have my sixth book coming out at the end of June for just this year. So I've I've basically written six books this year. And then I've also written a couple, I've written two novellas and a short story. So I've, I've just spent the last several years really upping my production and learning everything I can about independent publishing. And just with all of that put together, I think it's, I've been able to accumulate a a much larger catalog that way. And actually what I've realized this year is that that my pace is a little too fast right now. So I'm actually going to take the summer off because I'm like (laughs) like a a little, uh, you know, get a little burnt out on publishing that much. And for me, you know, I'm not necessarily writing like 90,000 word novels. A lot of my books are closer to 50,000 words or some, some are small. Some of my nonfiction is even smaller, like 20,000 or 30,000 words. So I do right. want to be, you know, I want to be clear about that and be upfront about that, but it is quite a bit, but I, you know, it's funny because in independent publishing, it's really common. A lot of people are writing that many books that really, late, wow. or, or even, um, doing at least that word count. So whether, whether it's spread out over three books versus six books, it's still, you know, it's still a lot of word count.
0: Yes, it is. Yeah. So connected to that, I've been hearing about your four step framework for delivering more words per hour. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So basically in 2013, I decided I had only been doing a book a year, like I said, so I had, I decided that I was going to drastically increase my word counts and I was going to do it by through like using spreadsheets and tracking my progress and so what I, you know, what I was able to do was go from about 900 words per hour all the way up to 3,500 words per hour. Okay. And I was able to systematize my ability to do this. Um, so I, I ended up, you know, I was writing about 50,000 words a month. So similar to NaNoWriMo but I was doing that every single month, not for the past four years now, but certainly, you know, certainly the past six months. Yes, I definitely have. And then
0: sometimes I'll take a summer off or uh, I kind of work in seasons. So you said there that you were able to create up to 3,600 words an hour. Now that's an incredible number of words. How do you manage to do that?
1: There are a couple big factors. So the four-step framework you referenced is, um, I, Kind of wrote I wrote about it in Write Better Faster, which is one of um, my books. But I can, I'll just go through it really quick. Um, the first thing is that you have to know what you're going to write before you write it. And so for a lot of people, they create, you know, they either are pantsers, which means they just sit down and type. Um, or they create maybe an outline. But what I found is that I did best when I created not just an outline, but when I also went like scene by scene or chapter by chapter and created beats for those. So I, I did, I found that the more pre-production I did on my books, the faster I could write. So that was step one. So then step two is to use timed writing sessions. And so I started using the Pomodoro method, which is 25 minutes of focused writing and then five minutes of break. So with the Pomodoro method, I was able to pretty much immediately double my writing speed. So I went from 900 words per hour to, you know, around 2000 words per hour. That was immediate. And it was literally just I took a timer (laughs) and put 25 minutes on the timer and then during those 25 minutes I could only write. So then the third step was to look at the way I was doing inputs. And so what I found was um because I had just increased my writing speed so much, I found that my wrists were having a lot of problems and I was just and my my hands were like in pain because of it. Um so I ended up looking into dictation. And dictation is, it's an amazing tool for people who want to get more words because you can actually speak at about 150 words per minute. That's the average. Most people can only type at like 50 to 70 words per minute. So if you just look at those numbers, you can see you can either double or triple your writing speed just from starting dictation. So, you know, I did it and it was, it was challenging at first. It was a lot of work, um, to learn a new skill set. Same as if you were learning how to type for the first time. It's not going to come as easily and it, there's going to be some frustrations, but I learned how to dictate and that, you know, again, shot my word count up massively. So that was step three. And then so step four, what I realized is that energy was really important. So having having stamina to output, um, you have to have some sort of fuel as an input in order to do that. And so I found myself getting really burnt out um, with doing these high word counts every day. And I realized that I had to... Like, even though I could get, you know, 10,000 words a day, I realized I could only do it a couple days a week before I just really started to feel the burnout. And so I realized that with any creative endeavor, you have to have some sort of input. So for me, I found that um, really simple things like healthy food, meditation, con- you know, consistent walks. Um, so I got, I got a Fitbit back before Fitbit was a big thing, (laughs) like back in like 2012, (laughs) I had a Fitbit and, you know, I, I started doing things to kind of refill that creative well before I wrote. And then that again helped me, it didn't really help me increase my writing speed, but it did help me increase like the amount of words I could do per week or per month. So as I started to track it on the much higher level, I realized that just this focus on balancing energy was critical to maintaining um, the amount of writing that I was doing. I think for most writers at the beginning, your limitations are going to be mental. It's a lot of um, mindset. It's a lot of like, how do I get my ideas on to the screen or like in a in a good format? So there are a lot of mental challenges at first. But then as you start to progress and as you start to overcome those mental challenges, the next thing is really your physical challenges and a lot of people think that writing is not a physical job, but it, it is. Yes. Um, and I, I was really surprised to discover that not only with, you know, protecting my hands and my wrists and my arms. Um, I also at one point I had an eye injury from staring at the screen too much. Um, and I couldn't. I, I had like, um, a dry eye and I was, I wasn't able to keep my eyes open for like almost a week. I still had to write. So I was kind of like writing. I was typing, but I just had my eyes closed <laughs> or I was dictating, but I just kind of had my eyes closed. So that was a really interesting couple <laughs> dealing with that. But yeah, there's, there's incredible physical limitations. Um, and energy is just. It's critical. And your health is critical. If you're going to be a writer, you have to work even harder on your health as a writer than most other professions um, where you might be walking around more or interacting with more people um, or, you know, walking to lunch and home or whatever. So you have to be very, very careful about that stuff. And once I once I made investments in improving my health, I was able to just maintain a much stronger pace throughout and, you know, over the course of like a month or a year.
0: Okay, so if people want to find out a little bit more about those four points that you've just described there, can you just remind us of where they need to go to find that out?
1: Sure. It's called Write Better Faster, and it's about how to triple your writing speed and write more every day. And uh, you can get that book. It's available on Amazon and through Kindle Unlimited.
0: Okay. So, one of the other things you talk about is offering ideas to increase the energy in a story around conflict and tension and emotion. So, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about the kinds of ideas that you offer to assist with that sort of thing.
1: Well, I think that the most important thing for any story is that you start with your theme. A lot of people, they start with like characters or plot or whatever that to me, it can cause problems. So your theme is something that, um, it's a universal truth. So a theme would be like good versus evil or, you know, um, love versus fear. Like, so like those things that people that are very like sticky and repeatable and that cause people great emotion, um, that's that's kind of, to me, the first thing you want to decide. And then once you're able to focus on your theme, then you can align everything else to that theme. And so it can kind of be a window through which you pass or like a litmus test through which you pass all your decision-making that's really the best way to increase emotions and like one thing that I always say is that with a theme so let's say you were doing um, good versus evil what people don't realize is that when you're creating these characters you are going to create characters that represent different um, point of views or different worldviews yeah of that theme so you're going to have somebody who's all good. You're going to have someone who's all evil. You're going to have people who are kind of in between. Um, and who are different shades and flavors of in between. And when you do that, then you're you're going to be able to come up with those strong conflicts. So for well, first of all, you're going to be able to attract the reader because they're looking for characters who are similar to themselves. Yes. Or who they can relate to. So if you're representing all these different worldviews on a universal topic that we all have opinions on, um, good, you know, good versus evil, there's going to be somebody that you can relate to, or there might, hopefully there's multiple people that you can relate to and that you understand their motivations. And so then you have the spread of, of characters who have different worldviews. And it it doesn't have to just be characters. It could also be groups within the society. So Harry Potter, for example, um, that's an that's one that I like to use because a lot of the people have read Harry Potter. But Harry Potter has four houses. One's about bravery and one's about wit, and one's about kindness. And then this other one is about looking out for yourself. <laughs> and so those are the four <laughs> Four different, four different views of what the most important quality in a person is. Right? And people can relate to that. You know, when, like, people will do those little sorting hat quizzes on BuzzFeed or whatever, and they want to get sorted into their house. Um, but it's, those groups represent different aspects of the theme of good and evil. Uh, and what, you know, what, what makes you good, what makes you evil, or what's kind of in between. So once you have those, I think that creates a much stronger conflict, because you have so like you have different groups who are going to look at the problem and solve it in a very different way than this other group. Um, and that is, and that's an opportunity to amplify and escalate the conflict in your story.
0: So this reminds me of some of the comments that I've seen people make around the fact that successful stories have within them two mutually exclusive forces. They have two different powers, a protagonist and an antagonist is one way to think of it. And the two cannot coexist. So, for example, Lord Voldemort and Harry can't coexist. And the fact that they can't coexist really drives the tension and the energy in the story.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love um, I love that distinction that you're making that it's not just that these groups clash, but that someone's going to lose. And so, um, it's interesting because at, you know, if you're thinking of it thematically, it's like, well, which, you know, I mean, good versus evil is a very simple example, but it's like, which worldview do you want to promote as the author? Um, so obviously with, that one, it's good. <laughs> like, you're not really going to promote evil in most cases. I mean, I don't know any authors who would promote evil. Um, but if you have a more, a more complex theme, um, a good example is, um, the book A Fault in Our Stars by John Green, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but, um, his theme is really death. And one of the characters is, you know, is scared of death because it's like, how do how does he build a legacy? Like he's thinking of like things that he could have accomplished during his life or, um, you know, what, like, like how, how he could, how he could be remembered. And then one of the other characters, her worldview is you just die and it's fine. And you hope that you, don't hurt the people around you. Like you hope that you're not just this, you know, grenade exploding. And if you are, then you want as few people around you as possible. Um, so then it becomes this love story. But I think something that people like that readers don't necessarily realize in terms of structure is that those are two very different worldviews. They're almost opposing So if you read that book, you'll see that by the end of the story, both characters have come around to the other person's worldview. Like they've learned from each other. Um, which is a, it's a very, um, common structure for a romance anyway, is that these two, you know, these two people kind of meet in the middle, but they've, they've learned from each other and they, they understand each other's worldviews. And so that's why I think the theme, the thematic piece is, is so important is you have to know what that is so that you can start to break down um, that theme into different characters. And then I think the tension really happens naturally then.
0: Now I want to change tack a little bit now and talk about an issue that I think is particularly important for self published and in- independent authors, and that's creating art versus making money. And that tension between our, ourselves as artists and ourselves as business people or as as people who are making money. And I wondered if you just had some thoughts and perspectives that you could share with us on that issue.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's certainly tension, but I think there doesn't have to be. So a lot of people believe that making art means not making money. So they kind of be, they, they buy into the starving artist myth, I guess I would call it. Um, and then there are a lot of people who believe making money, you know, you have to sacrifice the art aspect. I feel it's probably somewhere in the middle. And, um, you know, if you want to make art for yourself, then that's great. That's not, don't make that your job (laughs) (laughs) because a job is about providing value to others, not about (laughs) providing value to just yourself. And then at the same, on the same token, if you're going to make money from your work, you might as well be passionate about what you're doing. And, um and really, all of us should be even even if you're not an artist, you should really enjoy the work you do and not just be doing it to pay your bills. And the value in that is that you are actually able to provide more value to others and to better serve others. If you are working within your passions and your skill sets. So I, I do think that alignment is important. Anytime though you're working with anybody in any capacity, there is going to be some compromise. And so um, those people who say like, I'm just going to make my art and I don't care what anybody thinks of it. I mean, great. If you're, if you're going to ask them for money for that though, <laughs> you probably should care what they think of it because they're not going to give you their money if they don't think much of it. I think you kind of have to choose. Uh, for me, I, um I do focus. I, I do have some projects that are for me um, writing projects. And then I have stuff that adds value to the world and that I still enjoy, but I show up and I know that it's my job. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. I've made peace with that. So, you know, it's, it's all about just deciding for each project. Is this a money maker? Is this art? Is it somewhere in between? I don't think people should take on projects that are just for money. I just think that what's the point of doing art? What's the point of doing a creative endeavor if you're just doing it for the money? There are so many things you could do that are much easier than yeah. that, that yes. take a lot less energy and a lot less creativity and you could earn money from that. You certainly are going to have more energy for things that you're more passionate about and excited about. I mean, excitement itself is literally energy. Um, so if you're finding yourself getting excited about something, then that's, that's a burst of energy inside you. And you can direct that into something productive, like, you know, writing or, um, creating something. Uh, now not everybody, a lot of people aren't really strong at that. And it is a skill set that you have to build. So if you're, you know, a lot of us get excited and then we, we do something else with that energy and then it, it dissipates. Um, so you have to be able, like, you have to be able to use that excitement and that passion and channel it into something productive. But absolutely. I think, I think, um, you know, I think passion is incredibly important. It's, it's definitely a source of energy and it's almost like, um, it kind of works the same way that adrenaline works, um, in, in our body, um, in that it gives you that burst of energy to kind of get past maybe the more challenging parts or to to just make progress quickly
0: okay now i think linked to all of this is also the struggle of being both a writer and a marketer so i know a number of writers who really struggle with this and it seems as if the kind of personality and the kind of skills that you need to write and be creative are quite different from the skills and personality that you need to market yourself i wondered if you had some ideas you could share with us around that
1: yeah. You know, it's funny that you're asking this because I'm, I mean, I'm literally writing a book about this. Um, it's called get, get your book selling. Um, So what I talk about in that book, though, is that you can get your book selling after you create it. And what it comes down to is, so first of all, there are a lot of mindset things to weed through. Um So a lot of people are like, how do I market when I have no time? How do I market when I have no money? How do I market when I don't know what to do? Or how do I market when it feels really like smarmy and gross? Um, so a lot of people have all these blocks against it. If you're able to, to wade through a lot of these blocks though and really, um, change your mindset around that, then it becomes more of a checklist of things. And it's, it's really similar to writing in that people have lots of blocks on starting writing as well. But you can help those people get through those blocks and kind of just rewire their thinking around it they suddenly start writing and they'll, they'll start writing like crazy. Like they'll, you know, they'll be able to write every single day and they have like this writing habit and all this stuff. And a lot of it is really mindset work at the end of the day because writing, it's it's just like a task. (laughs) Like when you break it down, it's like you literally just put your fingers on a keyboard and you type, or you get on a microphone and you speak. Like there's not, It's not really a complicated task to do. Um, so marketing is very similar, to be honest. It's, there's a lot of stuff that blocks people, but once you get past those blocks, it becomes just a checklist. I have a framework called the 10 stages of audience that teaches people, here's how you build your sales funnel. And you know, what I say to people is like, it's, it's literally just a dance card. (laughs) Like you just fill in, you fill in the, you fill in each stage with like a couple pieces of marketing material and then you just create that marketing material. So one example is that one of the stages is just to offer your potential readers a free trial of what you're trying to sell them. So if it's a book, offer like a couple sample chapters. Anyone can figure out how to do a couple sample chapters, right? Like like you take a couple chapters from your book You put it in a PDF or whatever, and you just like share it with people like that. The the actual tasks are not like there's nothing hard or challenging or confusing really about that actual task. The reason that people don't do it is because of their mindset blocks. It's like, oh, I don't have time to do that. I don't I don't have the technical expertise to do that. I feel really uncomfortable sharing, you know, the sample with people or like trying to get people to read the sample. Like if you can get past all of that, it really, it really takes hearing from somebody who does the sample chapters. (laughs) Like if you, if you can talk to somebody who like has sample chapters of their book on their website and talk to them about how they were able to do that, you can break through it. Um, all those mindset issues. And so I think that, I think with the marketing piece, you have to realize it's just mindset. And if you've already written a book, you already understand mindset in some form because you had to get past so many different mindset issues to write that book in the first place. So you know that a lot of the challenge is mindset. And so it's just the same with marketing.
0: Now, it's interesting that you should talk there about mindset because I've just done a podcast episode on mindset and having thought about this issue for a little while, it just seems to me that so much of the challenge that we have as writers and as marketers just revolves around how we think about these things and our approach to them. So the mindset that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if you could just remind us about that ten step process that you mentioned there.
1: Yeah, so um the the book is called Get Your Book Selling and it will be out on it'll be out at the end of June. So those listening may, it may already be out when you're listening. Um, the framework is called the 10 stages of audience. So in, in get your book selling, the first part is all about these mindset blocks. Um, some of which I just mentioned like time, money, technical difficulties and so on. Um, the second part is about how to choose your marketing strategies because a lot of people focus on marketing tactics and that can be very overwhelming. So it's about how to choose just like one or two marketing strategies and just kind of stick with them. And then the third part is all about the 10 stages of audience. And so it walks people through, here's where a portion of your audience is at right now. Here are the things that they're looking for and like, what do they need to receive from you or see from you to get to the next stage of audience. It's just a checklist of stuff that you put in place. So like if you want someone to buy your book, they need to have a trial of your book. Like they need to read a sample or read the description or whatever. And so it's like you just put those in place, like make them available and send those people to that. And then a certain percentage of them will convert to the
0: next step. You make it sound very simple, Monica. It's, it's like we've just got to go and do it. we just got to. Take this
1: okay. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I'm not trying to. Um, I, I know that it's challenging. I, I get that. Um, and so, which is why the book really starts with the blocks and how to work through those. Um, because, because once you do, it does just become a lot more straightforward. And I think that's what authors want is they want, they want something simplified.
0: OK, now I want to change tack again and talk about some of your fiction works. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the fiction series that you're working on at the moment.
1: Sure. So my fiction series that I have out right now, it's a young adult urban fantasy kind of veering into a paranormal romance to some extent. But, you know, obviously for young adults and not for not like one of the adult ones, um, so that series, it's called Water's Dark and Deep, and it's about two teenagers, a, um Brian Pilot, so a boy and a girl, and they have been uprooted from their life because um, their mother died. And so now they have to go live with their father. And as they go, they realize that they have these powers, and so they're kind of uncovering these powers slowly, and they find out that their mother didn't die in an accident. She was murdered. And that she has all of these enemies, um, these supernatural enemies that are now coming after them. Um, so all, so they kind of have to unravel all these secrets that their mother has kept from them. And they have to, they have all these people telling them, you know, one thing or the other, and they have to figure out like, who, who am I going to trust? This is a a brand new world (laughs) that I didn't even know about. I didn't know I was a part of who am I going to trust here? And what actually happened to my mom? And right now there are three books and two novellas So the novellas are both part of box sets that um, came out in June. And then hopefully by the end of the year, I'm hoping to have eight books and three novellas. I'm about halfway there. Or no, I'm not quite halfway there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you're working on a series of books. And I wanted to ask you a question about balancing writing a single book with writing a whole series and i'm just wondering what you think about how you would balance revealing different things over a series of books how do you pace out the things that you want to reveal plot points the way characters develop over a whole series versus a single book
1: it's a huge challenge um that you know the reality of a series is that you're not often going to be able to start with book five (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's just the reality. So you're, as a reader, you're going to start with book one and you're going to keep going. So my, my books, again, I, I typically start with the theme or like a question of some sort. And then I try to make sure I wrap up the big questions by the end. But, you know, of course there's a bunch of stuff that's left open that you'll, you'll read the next book to get more information about. Or to continue the story. But yeah, it is, it is really challenging. This particular series is meant to be read more as a series. Uh, There are other series I've seen. I see this most often in romance and in thrillers where, so in romance, it's usually you stick with like a specific town or a specific family or whatever. But then each person in the family has their own romance story. So so then you have kind of this continuity, but you also, you know, you also have kind of these standalone books. So I I call it a standalone in a series. Um, and it's the same with thrillers. So you'll see something like um, what Dan Brown did. He had angels and demons and then he had the Da Vinci Code. And it's the same character in each mystery, but each one is also self-contained. So that's another way to do series that I think is really smart. I don't often recommend doing a standalone, like just a straight up standalone, because it's very, very hard to sell, um, you know, as as an independent author.
0: Okay. So for your series, how do you decide what's going to be an overarching theme or a storyline that goes over several books versus stories or characters or issues that are going to be dealt with within a particular book? Right.
1: Um, hmm, that's an interesting question. <laughs> so in my series, like I said, the the mom was murdered. So we're three books in and we still don't know who the murderer was.
0: <laughs> yeah, so that's the kind of thing I was talking about. I presume you're saving the reveal for who the murderer is for some point in the future then.
1: Yeah, so that will come out in upcoming books, but it's not out yet. But that said, it's, you know, it is kind of a smaller part of the story. Though, though it does drive the series and it drives the main characters forward originally, maybe a good way to think about this is to, to look at how television does it. And I think they, I think they do a great job of keeping lots of thematic questions open over the course of a season. But then each week, like, you know, Supergirl or whoever is battling a different bad guy. Um. And there's a
0: fight scene at the end. Yeah, I guess we can learn a lot from screenwriting and the way in which television works and the structure of television with episodes and seasons and how plots are developed that way. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about character and the way you create and develop the characters in your work. And I wondered whether your characters came to you pretty much fully formed within the thematic context that you've created or whether you have to work hard to gradually build them up.
1: For me, I, I think once I know their backstory, then it's a little bit easier for me to put stuff in place because you can learn so much about who a person is now by looking at everything that's happened to them. Our memories shape our worldview really more than most things, even, even more than the people who are around us now. So like something, for example, as I said at the beginning that my childhood like it was a good childhood, but the ch- one of the challenges I faced was that I, I hated like moving all the time. So if I, if I look at myself as a character now, which I'm not, I'm like a real person, but as a character, I, you know, I see that like we just bought a house and we live in one specific place. We, we actually live very close to where my parents ended up settling and where my husband's parents are settled. You can look at that and see that the reason for that is could be because of this experience in the past. You know, another thing is like right after college, I moved to Chicago by my, you know, pretty much by myself. And I stayed there and I remember thinking the whole time, like, this is the first place I've ever chosen to live and I, I chose it for myself. And so there I live such a big part of my identity in some cases. But I think a lot of that is because of my childhood experiences, where for others, where they live might not really matter to them. Yeah. Um Yes. Or, or it might matter in a different way. Like they grew up in a small town and they just want to, you know, escape and see the world or they grew up in a small town and they just want to stay in their small town. Like they don't want to experience anything outside of it. Um, so I, th- so I think that that shapes
0: it. Now that is interesting. And it's brought up another question in my mind, actually, that I want to ask you, because I think what you've done there is quite brave in a way, because you have used some of the aspects of your life that are quite personal um, and demonstrated how they could be integrated into writing and into character. And I guess for all of us writers, it's useful for us to be able to draw on the experience of our lives. But I think we also have to be able to guard ourselves, guard the things that are personal and private to us. So I wonder if you could just talk about how you think writers should use the experiences of their life, but maintain appropriate privacy as well for the things that are personal to them.
1: Well, I think you just have to know your boundaries and and just know what you want to share and what you don't. Um, for me, you know, like I said, I, I moved from kind of this more personal blogging and like talking about my experiences to writing fiction. And so, um, you know, the, this was, um, this was in 2011. I was going through a divorce. And so I actually started writing a lot of romance books, um, where, and, and I, I mean, I wouldn't say that I necessarily use my divorce, but I feel like there there was like um, there was kind of a healing in doing that type of fiction at that point in my life, as opposed to kind of these personal blog posts that I was putting out there in the world that were about my actual life. So it, it was something that um, gave me distance that and, and another thing is it really gave me anonymity, um, which was which was great. So like I wrote romance under a pen name. Um, and so it was just, so I think you just, and you can go through phases. So right now I'm not writing any romance books, but you know, I'm happily married. So maybe that's why, maybe that's part of it. Uh, Who knows? Um, but I think you just have to trust yourself and, and, um, Whatever you need at that point, you can just switch your writing to wherever that needs to go. I don't know if I'll start blogging, but I've been wanting to do um, videos and video blogging or vlogging, you know. So, so I think I'm in a place in my life, my personal life, where I'm more okay with putting myself out there. Um, something, something that I never do. So like I said, we just moved. I never share like personal information about where I live um, anywhere on the Internet, not even in my Facebook profile or anything. Um, I don't do check ins or anything because this is my this is my personal life. And I don't you know, I don't want readers to mail me stuff or show up at my house or anything crazy like that. So that's something I protect.
0: OK, now I want to come back to your writing process and I want to particularly focus on the steps that you go through after you have done some dictating. So, for example, let's say you've finished dictating a whole book and now you need to go through a certain number of steps to get to the final manuscript. So what would you be doing to get your book to the final stage?
1: Well, if I dictate first, then there's always a cleanup phase because dictation is never as um it, it has it has just more errors. so it's never as clean of a draft. Um, so I have a revision phase that I go through first before I even really read what's happened. you know, I, I don't even read what I wrote, necessarily. I just kind of correct issues in the manuscript and try to get it a little bit cleaner. Um, so then after that, I do editing. Usually, I don't tend to have a lot of rewrites for better or worse, because I've usually done a lot of pre-production on the book. So I've kind of figured out, you know, I've kind of made a lot more decisions before writing. So then by the time I've written something like that's pretty much what I wanted to have in the book. So editing, editing's next. I, you, I, I have an editor who's been a really good friend for 10 years, um, that I work with for the most part. And then after that, it's pretty much formatting and publishing. I have a formatter. I usually do all the uploads of the files myself. And then, um, you know, often my stuff goes on pre-order first. Um, so that's something I've been doing this year is just making sure I have stuff on pre-order and it'll, it'll just go up and uh, yeah, that, that's really it for me. Um, I, again though, I've, you know, I think for others. So I've been doing this since 2009. So there, there's a lot of stuff that comes pretty natural to me that if you're doing it for the first time, then of course, you're going to have a lot more questions than what I just described.
0: Okay. And what formats do you use to release your work?
1: Uh, I always start an ebook. So I am not at this point organized enough to have everything Everything releasing at the same time, so um, I'll usually start an ebook. I have a formatter who who does the print, and I have somebody who uploads the print and like does the proofs and all of that. <laughs> um, so so that's kind of taken care of for me after I have the ebook done, and then my formatter will also do the ebook. Now that's kind of a newer thing. I used to not. I used to just format my ebooks myself. Um, but now I, now I have somebody who does a better job at it than me. Um, and then, uh, audiobook. Audiobook is, it's a really important and growing, growing market. So it's very important to focus on. Um, with the audiobooks, I usually have a separate release for those. So right now, um, like our biggest audiobook group is probably the Growth Hacking for Storytellers series. And so I have a narrator, um, Cindy who does those and she just, she pretty much just does them when she has a time in her schedule. And so like, for example, my book prosperous creation, it came out at the beginning of the year, um, at the, you know, the very beginning, like January 4th or some, Yeah. You know, I don't remember the exact date, but it came out at the very, very beginning of the year and she has been working. She worked on the audio book in April, May, and we're wrapping up edits on that. And so that should be out, you know, in a, in like a couple months, but that is kind of a larger gap. And for those books, I use ACX. So, which is not to say that I wouldn't use someone else or something else in the future, but the way I do the growth hacking for storytellers books is it's a royalty split with the narrator
0: Okay, so I have one final question now. Um, If any of this has piqued people's interest, if they want to find out about uh, your nonfiction work, the kind of support and help that you can give writers, or maybe they want to find out about your fiction series or anything else, or they want to find out a little bit more about you, where do they go and how can they access all of that?
1: So the best place to go is prosonfire.com. That's my uh, author website. And so I do also have monocaleonel.com for my fiction, but it's not, it's not in good shape at the time of this recording. So don't go there, (laughs) go there in the future, six months from now. Um, so, so those are, you know, that's my online presence. And then if you want to check out the growth hacking for storytellers series, you can go to prosonfire.com slash GHFS growth hacking for storytellers. And, um, that will take you directly to Amazon where you can see all seven books in the series. And those are all for, um, independent authors or, or people who want to be independent. Um, and I'll, also actually if you are traditionally published, there's lots of, um, there are lots of writing books that are specific to like increasing your writing speed that would also be good. Um, and then my fiction is, uh, my fiction is series is called water, stark and deep, and that is available on Amazon as well.
0: Okay. Well, I've asked all of my questions, but is there anything else you want to say by way of advice or insight to aspiring authors who are listening to this?
1: Um, I think just, you know, I think just what I've already hinted at quite a bit is that a lot of the work is about mindset and the way, the way I've learned to view this author journey and, you know, being an author entrepreneur, um, I know when I first started, I was incredibly frustrated all the time because I didn't have the skill sets to create what I wanted to create. And what really helped me was to look at it as more of a growth journey um, and to look at it as like, this is an opportunity for me to grow as a person. And to look at who do I have to become, like what what kind of person do I have to become to reach the success I want? And so I realized I had to become a person who um, wrote on a regular schedule and who published on a regular schedule and who, you know, had people helping wherever you're at in your journey right now whether you've written your book, whether you've published your book, whether you just want to write a book, it's like, who do you have to become to get to where you want to be and do that first? Like, don't focus, don't focus on, you know, the different tasks that you have to do. It's like, become that person and work on becoming that person. If it means like waking up before work and writing 500 words, like become the person who does that. And then a lot of this other stuff will follow. Um, I always, you know, a lot of people ask me like, how do I make money at this? And it's like the money comes after you become the person that makes up, you know, that would make that much. <laughs> if that makes sense. Like um, the money, the money is almost like a representation of your growth journey
0: okay well monica thank you so much for your time it's been a fascinating conversation i'm so pleased you could join me
1: yeah thank you so much um i really appreciate it and i had a great time chatting with you so thank you you're
0: very (laughs) welcome thanks very much again
1: thank you bye Bye
0: bye-bye